<laughs> so you got out of Brighton alive. Yeah. Yes, I made it alive. Um, uh, thank you for all your your advice about the armor and and stuff like that. The bulletproof vests came in handy. You were lucky. Not everybody gets out. Such such a dangerous place. <laughs> yeah, I feared for my life the entire time. The gelato. Um, I was worried was going to attack me. Have you seen that movie, Children of Men? Yes, a while ago. Cl- Clive Owen's in it. Post, yeah. post, post-apocalyptic Britain. Yeah. Brighton's like that. <laughs> no way. It's true. No way. You just didn't see all of it. I, apparently not. Uh, I love Brighton. It was it was amazing. I think every time I go back to the UK, I'm going to make it a point to head back down there. There's been talk of actually sealing Brighton off from the rest of the UK. <laughs> I really like Children of Men. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell. Uh, I re- I actually really like it because um, you know whenever you watch futuristic movies, and I know you do, um, sometimes you know they're just they're dressed awkwardly. They're all in jumpsuits, or they're all sort of uh, you know carrying around technology that's just ridiculous or something. And I really like Children of Men because it was this really nice very sort of realistic version of what things would be like in the near future, right? There are sort of more screens, but, you know, there's still cars from present day, but they're worn down and stuff. I thought that they did a really beautiful job with that at sort of making it, it's like, yes, this is sometime in the future, but it's not like flying cars and stuff, you know? Mm, No, it was, it was really good. I'm not (laughs) bloody Brighton. They are. They're going to seal it off. I heard this. <laughs> they are. They're going to seal it off like Manhattan in Escape from New York. Okay. All right. And then, and then you have to blast your way out. Essentially. I love that movie. I love that movie so much. <laughs> Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Brighton's just like that. <laughs> okay. <So you> can... <laughs> Imagine, can you imagine if they remade Escape from New York now? In Oh, well, I mean, you'd have to go through all the boroughs and stuff, too, right? It's now all, oh. it's now all one place. Oh, man, it'd be amazing. I bet Zeldman could play the cabbie. Cabbie the taxi driver. <laughs> that would actually... You would be pretty good at that, actually. <laughs> it would work, wouldn't it? Ernest Borgnin. It That's... could be. Zeldman would be perfect for that. <laughs> <laughs> you, are you tweeting that? that maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. You could be Snake Plissken, I think. No, yeah. Oh, man. I think you could do that. You could do Kurt Russell pretty well. I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't. I would need to grow my hair. Uh, I chopped off my hair, by the way. I, we sort of swapped places from a hair standpoint. Now all of a sudden you're about as hairy as can be, and I went all... Uh, People have been making fun of me. I'm corporate Brad now. Yeah, we can't talk about my beard again. It's like every show. (laughs) Sue hates it. She's like, she hates it. (laughs) Hey, why why have you not been shut down? What do you mean? With with the whole US shutdown thing. We've been hearing lots of stories about that. Yeah, I'm a private contractor. (laughs) (laughs) I don't work for the government. But, you you could have been shut down. There's like weird weird stuff that's been shut down. 
yeah, I mean, it's it's actually pretty sad, uh, to be perfectly honest, where there have been, I've just been reading about, the whole thing is, is pretty damn sad, actually, <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, whenever you just see, you know, sort of what is affected by it, and you see all these different places, like just yesterday, one of the Congress people was shouting at uh, someone who was working without pay, sort of, uh, they were sort of volunteering their time, even though they shouldn't have been doing it. But apparently all these World War Two uh, veterans were trying to visit this museum. And so they kept the museum open uh, for them. Uh, but it was still closed to the general public. And this this Congress person came up and was just like shouting at this lady who was, you know, sort of doing her job and, and making sure that these these World War II veterans were able to sort of go in and pay their respects and stuff. It was just, it was just, there's just bizarre stuff like that and just like national forests and stuff like that. And it's just, mm, Cause all the national parks are all closed too. Yeah. It's just, it's just all really weird. There was an article I found on the BBC today. I don't know whether you've seen this, um, 10 unexpected consequences of the U S shutdown. Okay. Um, one of them being apparently there's one person now manning the five thousand, five and a half thousand mile border between you and Canada. <laughs> Their legs must be tired. It's like one guy. <laughs> Walk back, so all was, right? That must be great for. There's, there's a meat rush in Kentucky. There was literally no meat apparently in Kentucky anymore. What? I know. Crazy. No meat <laughs> in Kentucky. I mean, I don't know whether that includes chicken. But, I mean, that would be an international disaster if there was no chicken. Yeah, it really would be, yeah. I mean, you know, what would KFC do? What, what would normal people eat? It is pretty crazy, actually, traveling over to Europe and seeing KFC. You're like, wow, I didn't know it made it over here. But it sort of makes me happy. It's a point, yeah, of, point no, of national pride. It's, you know, it's really not good. When I was growing up, I used to know somebody um, that worked in the one KFC in Corby. This is the town I grew up in. And they used to defrost frozen chickens under the hot tap. Mm. Man, it was like, you know, mm, salmonella. Juicy. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> oh, dear. British people now, because of all this, we, we now know what a furlough is. We've yeah. never heard that word before. I don't think we have either, to be perfectly honest. We just called them layoffs. We should probably stop talking about this because I realize I don't like talking about politics. So. <laughs> I, just, I, I just like the tweet. This is the last thing we'll say because I saw this tweet that was going around yesterday or the day before, which is something like, you know, the U.S. government hasn't been shut down properly. Um, would you like to restart it in safe mode with health care and no guns? <laughs> Recommended. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, oddly enough, I just I just tweeted out. I said there there are three things I'm glad I don't get involved in: religion, politics, and responsive images. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like that's that's what allows me to sleep soundly at night. <laughs> we might talk about sleeping soundly in a bit. Listen, I don't want to kind of interrupt the conversation with a sponsor, so I'm going to interrupt the conversation with a sponsor now. Okay. And then we've got, like, a cool breeze all the way to the end. So, uh, anyway, we'll talk about Ghost Lab. That's our sponsor for this week. Um, if you're a responsive web designer or developer, a bit like us, really, I suppose. I suppose, um, yeah. I suppose so. I mean, you know, that is what we do for a living, I think. Um, you're going to really like um, our next sponsor. It's Ghost Lab. 
synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level. So here's the problem, right? You're designing or you're developing a site and you need to test it across multiple browsers and many different devices, smartphones, tablets. Now you could, if you wanted to, you could set up a local development server and you could FTP files to an external server, but you know, who wants to do that? Then you've got the job of keeping every device in sync while you test. You want to move around the site, clicking on navigation, filling in form fields. You need like three pairs of hands. But that's where Ghost Lab comes in. Ghost Lab simplifies and synchronizes everything across different browsers and devices. So as you do something in one browser or on one device, it happens on all the others instantly. It's like magic. You click on a link on a desktop browser and it gets pressed on a smartphone. If you type into a form input on a tablet, and it gets filled in across every browser or device that's connected to GhostLab. So here's how it works. You can install the GhostLab app on your Mac and then drag any HTML site to the GhostLab window. That's it. That's all you have to do. GhostLab does everything else for you. From then, from then on, you can just open your site in any installed browser and point any device on the same network to the GhostLab IP address. And that's, that's the great part. With GhostLab, there's not an app that you have to install on your devices. It just uses the browser, and that can be any browser. So GhostLab keeps a watch on your project, and then it pushes any changes you make to every connected browser and device. And that makes, makes designing using code, like I do a lot of, you know, really, really simple. I've been using GhostLab for the last few months now, and, man, I just couldn't go back. Another great thing is that GhostLab's not a subscription service, so you don't have to pay every month for the software. Man, I hate that. You just, just buy it. GhostLab costs 33 of our English pounds per user. I imagine you can get it, for, you can get it too, Brad. 40, 49 bucks, as with we your, say in the US, yeah. With your colonial, colonial dollars, <laughs> right? And you can install it on two computers, like a desktop and a laptop. That's what I've done. And there are volume discounts available too. So if you go to vanamico.com slash ghostlab and get ghostlab, we'll put a link in the notes. And if you use the offer code unfinished business, you'll get 30% off at the checkout. That's good. That's a good offer. Well, that's, that's ghostlab. Right. There we go. That's the business stuff out of the way. Let's talk about something else. What are you typing? I'm typing in the code. <laughs> I'm going I'm to download it. <laughs> Actually, it's really good. I mean, you know, I try to talk about things that, you know, I use, we use on the podcast. That's oh, great, yeah. And, uh, and Ghost Lab's just been one of those things that's it's such a lifesaver. Yeah. No, I, it, it's becoming really important. And so the way my workflow has been is what, what I strive for, what I want is you know, you're not going to test across 30 devices during your core development, but at the same time having, you know, a laptop, a, a tablet and a, and a phone sort of always synced during your, your core development, I think can go a really long way. That's sort of what I'm shooting for. And then, you know, whenever the real time comes to roll up your sleeves and do some real device testing, that's whenever you get out the 20 devices and stuff. So I've had a bit of a change of heart when it comes to thinking about, uh, you know, what devices I need to buy. Cause mm-hmm. I kind of, I kind of had it in mind that, you know, I'd need to have sort of one thing that represented a certain class of device. You know, sure. I'd have to have, you know, maybe 
um, an iPad. Before this was before the iPad Mini, I had that little kind of Galaxy Nexus thing, right? Um, and then obviously iPads and phones of different types. But the more work I do, the more I realise that I'm much more concentrating on um, how something's supposed to look rather than how something's supposed to, you know, behave in a real browser. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter to me whether it breaks in some kind of scabby old Android phone. Sure. All, all, all that matters to me is that it works on a, on a small screen device because I'm. it's more about design code than it is about, you know, end production code. I suppose sure. if I was doing development yeah. and I had to make sure that it worked across 20 different things and, yeah. you know, I'd have to own 20 different things. But I've been selling all my stuff off. I'm just going to have like two or three little tablets now. Right. And, uh, and, and that's going to be my... That's going to be how I work, I think. And then, yeah. you know, I wish that there was a, a lab, a device lab that, you know, had a bit more stuff. I wish I, I, wish I was closer to Brighton, maybe. <laughs> there we go. There you yeah. see. We're, um, we're, get, we're trying to get one set up in Pittsburgh, actually, right up, right up the road from me. Um, and we just sort of set the set the word out and um, got some feedback and stuff in some Google Docs. And, and uh, we were just looking at it last night, and it looks like uh, – all systems are go. So, because right now I have I have nine devices sitting in a drawer here. I'd, I'd much rather prefer to have other people use them. So, um, so yeah. So it'll be fun. But I will say that that even from a even from a design standpoint, I'd say like the the biggest thing that I'd be cautious about selling off the devices and stuff is certainly it's more about the ergonomics than it is about anything else really. Um, just sort of really making sure that things feel right. Yeah. Which is such a, which is, you know, it's just such an intangible thing. Like, uh, cause I, I notice this a lot with, with responsive sites and, and just, well, just mobile optimized sites in general is that there's this sort of feel that is either really intuitive or it's just sort of clunky. And a, a lot of my experiences are clunky in, in general because I'm left-handed and so I could sort of even just iOS seven and stuff is just like, uh, uh, and I, or I, I just got like the new one. And so it's longer. I was on like a iPhone 4s before and now I'm on the longer screen. And the fact that I'm a lefty, uh, means that things are already out of reach for me. And now that the screen's longer, it's even more awkward. So <clears throat> from a design standpoint, I'm trying to. Uh, do a better job at sort of considering ergonomics as I as I go through. Did you see? Uh, I think Gruber linked to this on Daring Fireball the other day. Um, there's a hidden mode, um, a one-handed mode that Samsung have added to their yeah. mega phone or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's like, it basically shrinks the screen down. <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> in like one corner size. of the screen and. <laughs> It's a, it's pretty funny. It's like it almost seems like an April Fool's joke, <laughs> but it's not. Ah, <laughs> oh dear. No, I love that. No, I just I, I've just been thinking more and more um, about the differences between you know design code and production code. You know, yeah. a couple of things have tripped me up this week on a project where you know I maybe I hadn't made the distinction clear enough. I need I need to write about this. Yeah, yeah. You and me both. Um, you uh, never read anything I bloody write anyway. Only, only the things that are put in books. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I don't like books. Blog posts I could 
search for and read and stuff, but books, man, huh? Ugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, so, I mean, yeah, speaking of things that, that you never bloody read, I wrote all about designing in the open like two years ago or more. Yeah. Actually, I, I wasn't saying, I, whenever I started this, it wasn't like, I'm inventing this thing and... Um, no, I so, but I, I very much was interested in, and so I sort of put out like the bat signal where it's like, Hey, you know, who else has, has good examples of, of this. And, um, I got some really great stuff back, including I saw. like you nine like or a... 10 posts from you, which is well, awesome. No, but the, actually I was more interested in the other stuff that you collated yeah. Um, in that, what was it, that designing in the open post? So what, why did you, what, what all of a sudden sparked off the interest in doing this? Well, so, so, okay, so a year ago I moved from New York City to Pittsburgh. Um, whenever I was living in New York City, uh, I donated to the New York City Food Bank, right? Help feed people, all that, you know, the, it's the least I could do, uh, whatever. And then whenever I moved to Pittsburgh, um, I was like, well, you know, I'd really like to, to contribute to the food bank in this area. And I went onto their site and couldn't for the life of me figure out how to give them money. <laughs> like, oh man, I, uh, I'd really like to help them. And, um, so as it turns out, you know, the first sort of six months of my year have just been crazy, just, just chock full of work. And I sort of got that, uh, all out of the way, uh, which is great. And then it just so happened that they ended up tweeting to me about something totally unrelated. It was about something about, you know, oh, you should visit this restaurant or something. And I was like, oh, hey, Pittsburgh Food Bank, uh, do you need any help with your website? Um, and they're like, yeah, as a matter of fact, give us a call. And so, so that's sort of what, um, what sparked it. And so, so we went in there and, you know, this is a, it's a pro bono project that, that my wife and I are doing for them. Um, and so, and we're, and we're happy to, you know, it's like, you know, part of me is like, okay, well, you know, I, technically I could go volunteer at their distribution center or, you know, maybe, you know, use the skills that, that I have, uh, to help them in a way that hopefully will allow more people to, to, to help them. Um, so, so really excited about that. I've never worked for such a benevolent, uh, uh, on a benevolent project before. There's always been, you know, some sales pitch or, you know, somebody selling something and this is, uh, far from it where it's just, Hey, we want to, we want to end hunger in the area and, and beyond. And part of their goals, um, as sort of, you know, we started talking to them, they're like, we, we sort of want to be perceived as, as leaders in this, you know, they have this really massive facility, this really sort of advanced facility. It's really green as far as their architecture is and stuff. It's really, really cool. And they're like, yeah, but, but nobody really knows about it. And we really want to sort of, you know, get the word out and also, you know, be able to, to be in a position to help other, other food banks across the country and stuff like that. So, um, so that was one of their goals. And, um, simply because, you know, we're, we're donating our time for this project. We also were really interested in, uh, you know, getting the most out of it. And, and I've really wanted to do an open redesign project, 
um, for a long while now, um, simply because I've just learned so many techniques that I use on all of my projects now because people have written about, you know, what they've done for, for specific projects. Like Dan Ball's element collages is a great example of that. Right. So, mm. and, and that's something that we've employed on all of the projects I've, I've worked on ever since reading that. And you know, I talk about it in all my talks. I talk about it in all my workshops and, uh, had he not done that open redesign, maybe, you know, maybe he would, he would have been able to write about the technique, but it wouldn't have this have, have had the same impact because maybe it would be too abstract. You know what I mean? Where I, I really like his project timeline idea that you used. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen that before and it's such a cool little idea. Yeah. Yeah, and you can just get to see things evolve. Like the the thing that we we did, like I I threw in the tweet that's that started us <laughs> that started us down the the path to the project, and I thought that that was pretty cool. Where it was like we could go from literally the first contact all the way through to you know whenever we launch and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's a really nice uh, it's concept and. Um, but yeah, so, so I'm just, I'm super excited about it. I'm just, um, uh, my wife and I both, we're just, we're just really excited to, to, to write about things and share sort of what we know. And a lot of this, you know, is the culmination of, of, you know, our whole careers, you know, all the design thinking we've been doing, all the techniques we've been doing for, for paid clients and for these, you know, big, massive brands, uh, that, you know, we've historically worked with. And now it's like, okay, well now we could actually sort of, you know, talk about what we've done with those, but just sort of through a different lens, which is cool. So, um, well, what, what occurred to me, I mean, it kind of makes me think when you're talking about this is that, Every time I do a new workshop, like, you know, which is usually now once a year, or I start to think about a book project, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of rattling around in the back of my head at the moment. Um, every time I always want to do an example site yep. and I rack my brains trying to think of what the stupid example site is going to be. And, you know, this year I made a, I made a crazy little site about apes in space. Cause you know, well, why wouldn't you? Sure. And, <laughs> You know, and you know they did send a lot of real apes into space. So there's not just about you know the fictional stuff. Right. They said Ham the Astro Chimp. He's my favourite. Anyway, so I was thinking about this the other day, and you you sparked this off. Is that why the hell am I spending my time designing some fictitious ape related uh, example site yeah. when actually I could be spending exactly the same amount of time coming up with you know with ideas that could ultimately be used for some you know pro bono project some kind sure. of something for the public good if you like sure um because you know i'm all for consistency you know when you read a book or you got a workshop or something you know it's i like everything to match i like everything to kind of fit together it's like here's the example here's the the about page or something we did yeah. on the about page for this site right and that you know I, I could just spend my time doing something for a charitable project and it would be so much more worthwhile than just making up some crazy crap yeah yeah, I mean, there's certainly something to be said for a simple demo site. Just a lot of it comes down to uh, time and the fact that, you know, you could just sort of whip it up yourself without having to get anybody else involved. So I could sort of see that. But at the same time, I, I think I'm I'm of the similar uh, mentality as you where where it's just like, yeah, let's let's do something for real. 
um, and then talk about it. And uh, more importantly, you know, sort of convince, uh, you know, other people to, you know, that, that this is worthwhile too, that it's not, it's not totally selfish. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, people have been, you know, the awareness of the Pittsburgh food bank, just for whatever reason, in in the web network, you know, the web community. Now some people know about the Pittsburgh food bank that didn't know about it before. And so it's, it's good for awareness. And, uh, I sort of talk about that in, in my posts is like, you know, why in the world would you do that? You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, are still scratching their heads about, you know, well, why would you go out on a limb and, and sort of lay it all out there? Why would a company ever agree to it? And, and, you know, to be honest, I, I've never tried to do it with, uh, you know, with, with a, a paying client and B with a client that, you know, wants to have a competitive advantage or, you know, is a, is a for-profit, you know, sort of enterprise or whatever. So, um, it would be interesting to sort of apply that same stuff to, uh, you know, to one of those, but I mean, even like, you know, all about the, the Starbucks style guide and stuff mm. like that. It's like, you know, Lincoln, the guy who ended up sharing that, like, how awesome is that? You know what I mean? They're a for-profit company, but like, you know, and I, I actually don't particularly like, like Starbucks coffee, but I love Starbucks as a brand. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that they're sharing, uh, you know, their process. They're sharing what they know. New York Times, same thing. You know, uh, you know, the BBC, the Guardian, like BBC has the, the responsive news, um, blog where they're blogging about their responsive process. Guardian has their own GitHub account. New York Times has their own GitHub account. And so what you're seeing now is slowly but surely this trend emerging that, you know, the more open you are as an organization, the more willing you are to, to share, uh, you know, all your knowledge and, and your learnings and your tools and stuff like that, uh, the more positively people will perceive you. Which... Mm, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've done an open redesign on two projects now, um, both going back. I don't think, I don't know why I haven't done it more recently actually, but we did. I mean, the big one was this, uh, new internationalist yeah. magazine, uh, project that you linked to in, in the post. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they had their own motivations for wanting to do it. And I, I seem to remember me suggesting it based on something Mark Bolton had done. You know, he'd done the, he was talking Triple. about this actually. Yeah. He, 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 there was a tweet that I spotted from him the other day when people were talking about this. He was, um, he said that there's a difference between what we're doing, which is kind of you know just designing in public, if you like. Yes. Um, and what he did, which was to do kind of an open redesign within a, you know, like a closed community, like Drupal. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I'd been interested in that, and I don't think. New internationalists and he did kind of any convincing. Um, and they, I think they, then they kind of, then they built a case on the back of it. You know, they, they had their ideas. It's like, wow, if we're going to do this, then, um, and one of their big things was that, that their old site had been there for so long that they wanted to sort of soften the blow with readers. Yeah. They didn't want, they didn't want readers to, to just wake up one day and go, what the hell is this? Yeah. This, this yeah. wasn't the website I was looking at last night. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. So you could sort of ease everyone into it and, and also just say like, yeah, we, we recognize we have a crappy 
eight-year-old website and how about, you know, how about, you know, we can show you the fact that we're working on it, <laughs> that we're working yeah. towards it. Yeah. So just hold in tight. You can follow along with the progress, but like, you know, rest assured, you know, we're, we're making things better. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Was, I haven't it, considered that. Yeah, no, it was excellent for that. And they, you know, they published their own article. Sometimes they republish mine on the blog, but you know, they, they published their own stuff asking for, for feedback. And the cool thing was with it, um, was that they were getting feedback really early and really often from, you know, from their own readers. Yep. I mean, that stuff's just worth its weight in gold. Yeah, totally. It's it's certainly a double-edged sword too, um, especially like you, you need to have, I think, you need to be working with a client that has a good sense of self. Uh, but one of the projects I, I was working on earlier this year, it was uh, anytime anybody would say anything negative about anyone particular section of the site or whatever it's uh i don't know should should we get rid of this (laughs) and 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 as it turns out you know they're they're actually sort of they're still sort of going through and and implementing it into the cms and they're and they're actually sort of lopping off some really good features which is unfortunate so people uh, sometimes have a crisis of confidence they 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 start off being quite bold and then you know they they'll get one or two comments and it, you know, not necessarily like an overwhelming you know majority oh, sure. huge wave of stuff but just one or two people can go oh well, I actually preferred it the old way yeah and then oh then all of a sudden do you think we're being too you know, too yeah. far too fast <laughs> yeah and that's and and that's it it's certainly a skill and is something that you know as as I speak more, as I put myself out there more, as I do other things, you know, you, you get, you know, your feedback back or you, you get comments on your blog and most people are like, oh, thanks for sharing this. You know, I, I could see how this could be helpful and stuff like that. And you're like, cool, job's done. And you have some person that's like, oh, this is an old concept or, oh, I saw this on Vimeo already, or oh, blah, blah. And it's just like, ugh. And those, you know, of course, those are the things that stick out, and those are the things that you remember. Uh, you don't remember all the positive feedback and the and the constructive stuff. You you always remember, you know, just the naysayers and stuff. And so it's, it's something that I've been working on, but if, in the, you know, related to, to open designing in the open, you know, you do, you need, you need to have a pretty good filter. You need to, you need to have a good idea and maybe even, you know, write some rules up front with the client and say, you know, this is going to happen whenever you, whenever you're openly asking for feedback, or even if you're not openly asking for feedback, but you're putting things out there, you're going to get feedback. Um, and you might actually want to talk about that stuff ahead of, ahead of time, just so people, so that there's sort of a, you know, strategy on how to deal with it, you know, how to, how to deal with John Q public. Well, we, we wrote certain, about certain topics in certain areas, and I think it helped to focus people's comments and feedback on particular, you know, particular aspects. Yeah. Um, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite as narrow as maybe I'd make it now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talk about entire pages, which is something I probably wouldn't do now. You know, I'd probably talk much, be much more granular yeah. uh, in the future. But it did, it did help to focus people's attention rather than just something go live and people go, ah, oh, that's crap. Yeah. So what was the other project you did live um, or open? 
Well, the other one was uh, it was an online payment services, like an online invoicing system called Canny Bill, um, up in the north of England. And that is, the site's not live now. I think the company either closed or uh, they got bought out and then shut down or something. I don't know, but it, okay. it's not there now. But it was a uh, I'm looking at your demo on your site. Yeah, all of the demo files are still there, so you know you can see uh, you can see embarrassingly <laughs> the the shiny Web two point style design aesthetic that was all the rage back then. Um, and beautiful. actually, I got this job uh, not just based on the fact that you know they thought I was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be said. (laughs) But on the fact that um, they asked me to do an open project because they knew that they'd get a lot of exposure. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's actually quite a big big plus for for a lot of people. Yeah. So Um, part of me feels a little shady about that, though. Well, no, the, there was another company related to them that asked me to do the same thing, and I did feel that it was pushing too far, and I, and I didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and they, they, I mentioned this last week when I was talking to Les Elcote. Um, you know, some, sometimes people will go, um, you, didn't, you, know, you didn't write about the project. And it's like, yeah, you know, because I'm not just a PR machine. I'm not, part yeah. of your PR, I'm not part of your PR platform. Yeah. Well, it gets really interesting too. Just, I mean, even for non-clients and stuff, I struggle with that a lot. I get a lot of people emailing me that's like, Hey, here's this thing. Hint, hit, nudge, nudge. Go ahead and tweet it out or, you know, feel free to, you know, share this with <laughs> anyone. <laughs> it's like a, a sort of like awkward, you know, like favor, uh, but yeah, it's just it's just sort of weird wherever you're in this weird position of like, well, you can you can sort of help, you know, publicize something or a client's work or, or whatever. And if and if you don't, then uh, it it's sort of weird. It's just it puts you in an awkward spot. Anna was actually just talking about this uh, whenever I was in Brighton. She was talking about, you know, a client sort of uh, a little upset that that she didn't blog about the the new design and stuff like that she didn't sort of share it out there and and scream it from the hilltops which is interesting mm, no it it does become difficult yeah um, i want to work on more projects though where where i i can just share whatever i want without having to worry about getting getting fired i like um, your idea about making it open by default and there is a case for actually writing that into the contract to be honest oh totally and 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 you put some guardrails on it you sort of allow them to to sleep a little easier we're not gonna you know put up all your earnings and you know like we're not going to share like any sort of like legally sensitive stuff uh, but new, new internationalist they actually let me share their readership data Wow, that's cool. Which was awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's like that's like extra super bonus, right? That's a, it's not like a prerequisite though. Like so it's like yeah, you want to encourage them to share as much as as possible, but at the same time it's like you know, you don't want that to be a non-starter. It was like <laughs> if you're feeling especially altruistic, then go ahead and share this stuff too. But uh uh that's really cool. 
I'm going to be really interested in how this one that you're doing goes because when I did my last ones, I think that it was a different time in the industry. You know, it was kind of, um, I mean, Twitter was around, but it wasn't the, you know, the huge thing that it is now. People had blogs that they wrote on regularly. And that was the way that, you know, a lot of communication happened, not just, you know, between people, but, you know, about designs and projects and stuff. Sure. And, you know, with these, with these projects that we did, we got a lot of feedback, you know, not just from, you know, new internationalist readers, but we got a lot of web designer developer feedback as well. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of testing kind of came for free because people would go, sure. oh, have you looked at this thing in IE6? And we'd go, oh, crap. And yeah. then, you know, we'd go off and fix it. Right. But it's really different today because, you know, Twitter's the thing and... You GitHub know, is the thing. GitHub's the thing and um, and Dribble is the thing, right? You know, I had yep. Dan Cederholm on the show a couple of weeks ago and, you know, we were talking about, you know, Dribble and where it had come from and stuff like that. And it is. He, he wanted to find out what people are working on by not giving too much away, right? That was his whole thing. Yeah. So hence the kind of, you know, the preview teaser thing. Sure. Which is what, and that's, well, I mean, Dribble's interesting because I think it's, I think if you, if you kind of accept the point of Dribble, then it's okay. But it's, I don't think it's a really good mechanism for design feedback. Yeah, it's so, I mean, like, in, in, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's certainly flourished into something that's much, much different, right? And it's sort of, you know, he provided a platform for people to actually have those sort of conversations. And so, so that ended up happening. Uh, but yeah, maybe it isn't, (laughs) maybe it isn't the best one. When you frame something, when you, when you know, let's imagine we're talking about, I don't know, the donation side of, uh, of the food bank, right? Sure. You know, you're framing that in a conversation, in a blog post about we, you know, we're, we're working on this particular aspect of the UI and there's a context and everything else. And the feedback that you're going to get is going to be much different from if you were just to stick um, even a screen grab um, of the whole form up on Dribble and go, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And people totally. go, oh man, you know, no, the, the the forms need, you know, right. need to be fl- the, the form buttons need to be flatter or something. You know, right. you're going to get that kind of. Well, kind of exactly, and 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 that's that's. I mean, coming back to you know the thing that you've been talking about forever now is you know whenever you provide someone a picture a picture of something, they're going to comment on the picture. They're going to comment on the things they can comment on, you know, the color, the texture, the, the, all that stuff. But like whenever you, um, whenever you show something in context, whenever you, you actually give people the ability to use something, all of a sudden, all those comments about the drop shadows and stuff sort of fall away. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned this, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I ended up doing it, but I I made a Mastercard's uh, mobile website uh, back in the day. Whenever I was still working at RGA, and I don't know how I did it, but I ended up sort of commandeering the project, and things were going, you know, the normal sort of waterfall approach, and and I was sort of like, okay, guys, that's that's good enough. We could stop there. We could stop with the flat comps and stuff like that. I'm just gonna spend some time and you know, code, code up what you've done. And it was, it was actually really quite good, but you know, like big sort of orange buttons and all sorts of stuff. And, um, the way we ended up doing it is, and, and the client was remote. They were in, you know, they're somewhere else. I never met them. 
And I never even saw them. It was all sort of conference call type stuff. And so we get on the phone and I say, okay, you know, we're going to review the designs. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, you, you guys didn't send us a, a PDF. I said, that, no, there, there is no PDF. Um, just go to this URL on your phone. And I said, well, you didn't, you didn't tell us what, what phones we should have on hand. You know, we, we need to go out and buy. I said, well, what phones do you have? Oh, one guy's like, well, I have a Blackberry and well, I have a, you know, Android, uh, you know, Droid Incredible. I have a, an iPhone 3, 3G or whatever, <laughs> 3S or, uh, whatever was hip back then. Um, and I was like, okay, just fine. Fire it up there. And sure enough, they did. And I'm like, go to this address. And, and they're like, oh, great. And week after week, we would do this where basically they would fire up the design on their phone, something that I'm not even testing on, uh, in, in, a, in the case of a couple of these Blackberries and stuff. And I'm like, you know, here's the design looking for feedback. And all of the feedback was about functionality was about quickness was about ease of use was about ergonomics and very 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 little of it had to do with uh i think that the fonts uh you know a little too smushed or i think that this color is a little too bright um and that was that was a real turning point for me as far as the whole designing in the browser thing goes because it's like if i could get away with getting people to comment on the right things, the things that really matter from a user experience perspective versus sort of continuing to, to, you know, demonstrate, you know, just throw up, uh, a flat, you know, lifeless thing. Um, then, then why not do that every time? I think it's, I think it, it works for the visuals as well as working for the for the user experience side of things as well, because one of the things that I found over the years is that you can spend you know as long as you want to spend producing this exquisite um, piece of work that is the whole page. You know, it doesn't matter what page it is, the home page, yeah. right? And that whole page is trying to communicate lots and lots and lots of things that you need to have conversations with uh, conversations about with the client. And you could be, there could be, um, I don't know, let's, let's imagine it's a, a shopping cart process, you know, that you've really worked on optimizing and it's demonstrated through this piece of work sure. and you can show them that and you can put this in front of them and you can say, so let's talk about the shopping cart part of this for a moment. And, you know, you can focus their eyes onto that particular part of this whole page and nine times out of ten, their eye is going to drift away yeah. onto something else, and they're going to go, that's not the most recent version of our logo. Yeah. And you go, no, no, forget about the logo right yeah. now. Let's talk about the shopping cart process. And it's right. boiling everything down into um, into these, well, you call them atoms, but, you know, this kind of, like, modular design approach. Sure. I, th- I just think it really works. And Dribble actually does – Dribble kind of inspired me in a way because you can look at a – at a part of something in Dribble, mm-hmm. um, and you can get an idea for whether or not the personality of the design is right. You know, yeah. is it too uh, contemporary or too traditional sure. or whatever? And it's and it's out of context. And that was that was the beginning of my whole kind of you know design atmosphere idea. Yeah, um, because you can you can really take something out of context and have 
focused conversations with the client about that one particular thing. Yeah. And they don't get, they don't get distracted quite so easily. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, that, so I've been working with some super smart people this year, uh, like Josh Clark and Jennifer Brooke and Dan Mall and Jonathan Stark. And the way that, that our process worked and something that I'm actually going to be taking further, um, and say, so actually, this is, was it yesterday at dinner or the day before? But I started talking to Melissa about, uh, some clever, uh, technique that I'm, I'm hopefully going to employ on the food bank website, but it's all about this idea of, of, of showing the client the right thing at the right time and to sort of not get too far ahead of yourself. And, and my, the way that I see a lot of designers and, and everybody is, is just like, just let me get into the tools that I love. Let me, you know, let me jump into Photoshop or the, you know, the developers are like, let me jump into code and, you know, okay, I'm, you know, I'm making wireframes. So just let me jump into that. We're, we sort of, we're so eager, uh, to sort of get into sort of our, our sweet spot that we sort of bypass, we, we jump the gun and then we end up sort of paying for it later. And so, uh, instead of that, it's, I, I feel like the design process should be a little more calculated, a little more reserved, and sort of slowly but surely sort of build up um, layers of fidelity and just like just things in general. Like, for example, uh, one of the projects I was working on, Jennifer Brooke, um, who was like the she made like a ton of the New York Times mobile stuff. She was she apparently was on stage with uh, Steve Jobs whenever they announced the iPad, which is pretty crazy. Um, but so she, the way that she approached like the sketching, like the, the IA and the, and the, the content strategy and stuff of this was so very different from any of the other sort of projects I've ever worked on. Cause normally, uh, wireframes for me are these really high fidelity things with annotations that read like book chapters and stuff. And what Jennifer did was like the exact opposite of that, where she just had like gray rectangle, gray rectangle, gray rectangle, and would number them. And it would be like three or four words about like what it is. There's like featured area, Unbelievably, la- latest posts. <laughs> that goes back to, uh, and I'll have to dig up the link from, but it's from a million years ago where Jason Santa Maria talked about gray box wireframes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 2005 or yeah. something like that. He's, 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 I've, I've been at a couple of his talks recently. He's still talking about it. It's, it's, and it's awesome. It's so awesome. But also the concept of text only design is also really in, uh, attractive to me. There's been a lot of talk about like sort of URL design in, instead of like necessarily like a flow chart or like something like really visual, like sort of instead of that show, uh, just show the URL structure and that mm. gives you an idea of like the hierarchy and stuff. But then also even sort of backing away from gray boxes where, where it's just like, here's the stuff that's going to be on, on the page in a text list period where it's like, we're going to have our mission statement. We're going to have uh, a, a big impactful image. We're going to have a button for get help. We're going to have a button for give help. Uh, we're going to have our sponsors there. We're going to have a footer and you can do all this in text, um, sans any sort of 
indication that this of how it's going to be visually represented. And by sort of signing off on that stuff, not to say that it can't change in the future, but by like sort of doing it this very extremely lo-fi way up front, you're able to sort of have the right conversation at the right time. And I think a good place to start is, well, what, you know, what content should be on this page? Uh, and, and have those conversations early so that they're not distracted by, well, I don't, I don't like that blue when you're trying to get them to comment on, you know, should this thing even be here? I don't know whether, I don't know what your experience was at RGA, but I think a lot of designers I talk to, particularly within agencies, they, they're still working in, I mean, not just, you know, back to the early days of the web, but, you know, before that even. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> it's like when Don Draper would stand up, in a, in a client, you know, presentation on Mad Men. Yeah. Um, and, you know, th- they'd have the, the boards on easels all covered up and he'd yeah. be telling the story, be painting the picture about, you know, the new concept for the campaign. And then he'd flip the thing over and do this reveal. Yeah. And, you know, okay, so they were, it wasn't finished artwork. It was, you know, sketches and stuff like that. But there was a, there was a sort of a finished thing there, a finished idea. Sure. And a lot of designers are still kind of working inside that space where they want to finish what the whole thing is going to look like um, and present that as almost like a finished piece of work. Right. And I don't know whether that has a place anymore, does it? It, uh, it totally doesn't. I mean, it makes sense to, to do that sort of thing if you're an architect and the building's going to fall down and kill a bunch of people if you don't get it right before you actually begin construction. But with digital products, with digital things, you know, there's Command Z, there is version 2, there is uh, this sort of living, breathing sort of environment that you could continually iterate upon. And that's it's a really uncomfortable feeling for a lot of, a lot of people. And even for me in my own work and stuff like things that, you know, like once upon a time, I would be like, oh, my site's a piece of crap, you know, you know, cobbler's shoes and all your cobbler's children's shoes and all that stuff, you know, wherever you never have time to work on your own site. Um, and I was like, well, I can't find the time to, uh, you know, to do a whole new version. And then over time, I realized, I'm like, well, I don't need to do a new version. I just need to, like, fix this thing that's clearly broken. And so I'm just going to, and I do that every couple days. I go in and try to, like, fix something. Like, usually whenever I see it and it's bothering me, then I go in and actually iron the thing out. And it's like this idea of sort of continually living with something. And that's, uh, it's interesting, as I go around and I talk to more people, the, the, chasm between product development so you know someone who works say at etsy right so i went in earlier this year and talked to them and they're living with their creation day in and day out constantly trying to make it better and that's what they care about and they so they understand just inherently the the value of sort of that iteration of of sort of you know continual improvement whereas my background uh, is in agency life, wherever it's like we have this big honkin' redesign project, we do it, and then I go away forever, and then you know they'll come back three years later and say, "Okay, time to do it again." Yeah, that's mostly the world. Mostly the world I live in too. Sure, I think it's a different conversation that 
that we have to have with people because yeah. you know still a lot of my clients are we need a redesign right um and generally you know it's burning down the old thing and putting something else up and it's a cycle that they must go through every three four you know maybe five years or something um and it's just completely it's completely wasteful and i think probably disruptive to you know customers and, and users as well but how you get people to think about this continual iteration when you know perhaps they've got a certain budget at a certain time or whatever i don't know i haven't figured it out yet sure well i and so so let's talk about that because i think you have between between rock hammer and what i'm trying to do with pattern lab and stuff is what we're trying to do and deliver to our clients is no longer just, here's your site, call me in three years. Uh, we're saying, here is this design system that you can live with, that you could extend, that you could build upon, and that whenever the time comes to um, to totally revamp everything, we don't have to throw the whole system out. Um, all your Lego bricks, all of your component pieces of, of what makes your site, your product, your service tick, uh, are all there and accounted for. We just have to think about, you know, how we might go about sort of, you know, restructuring it, redesigning it, making it look better, uh, all that stuff. But like, they don't have to burn the whole thing down anymore because we're actually giving them a solid foundation with which to stand. Mm, I mean, sometimes I'll work on something for a period of time, and when it's finished, there's almost like a period of mourning. You know, you're kind of, oh, I don't have to work on that again now, possibly <laughs> possibly forever. But I would love to do... I mean, I don't want to work on products. I don't think that I'm the kind of guy that could just work on Etsy for, you know, for the for the rest of my working life. Sure, just, sure. It's not going to happen. And, and I do sometimes have feel that there's this uh, conflict between, you know, what we do in terms of, you know, general client services and product designers. Because, you know, I never, I never want to design power drills, right? That's not what I do. You know, yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more from the kind of, you know, old, school kind of you know concept advertising background than i am yeah. in terms of you know nitty gritties of moving buttons until they are optimal in size and position you know that kind of stuff <laughs> does not interest me one little bit but what i do like to think is that you know my, the work that i do now is not going to get undone or burnt down in three years by you know i'd like to continue to to develop it. And I, I haven't figured out a way business wise to kind of present that really. I mean, I, I say to people, we'd like to do monthly, you know, not monthly, uh, you know, quarterly, you know, design reviews. Let's figure out what's working and what's not working. Sure. Um, sure. And I, but actually sometimes it's, it's a little bit of a difficult concept for people to grasp because they say something along the lines of, well, can't you just make it perfect the first time? Right. <laughs> That's what right. we're paying you for. Right. You know, why Why would you need to improve the shopping cart system? Can't you just make it right the first time? Right. And then, and that's where you just, I think, bury them in stats. <laughs> that's that's sort of a lot of times whatever people are like, oh, yeah, you know, either performance doesn't matter or let's just do it once and like get it done with. It's like, okay, here's, you know, this company, you know, continually optimizes their thing. Uh, Carrie McGrain talks a lot about in, in her talks about, uh, content management systems, how some, you know, most places are, that's a total set it and forget it kind of thing. 
Uh, but like Huffington Post pushes like a dozen changes to their CMS every single day. Uh, you know, because it's, it's a tool that everyone relies on, that their, that their bottom line relies upon. Um, and so it's like, you can sort of give a lot of case studies about, yeah, here's why improving matters, you know, and it's, it's also like, (laughs) it's also a little ridiculous to think of like, oh, just get it perfect the first time. It's like, I'm going to work out. I'm going to run literally all day. I'm going to work out for 24 hours and then I'm going to take the rest of the year off and then I'll, (laughs) (laughs) and then I'll, and I'll come back and I'll try to lose weight again next year. Right. So it just uh, like the, the concept is flawed, but yeah, how we, how we talk about that is, is something that's I think pretty new when it comes to uh, client services. I think that like the digital product side of things, they sort of, have that inherent understanding, but, uh, it's, it's certainly, I think our job to convince clients that this is what they need to be thinking about. Yeah, definitely. Do you know, there was so much that I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, but we've run out of time because I, like I like to keep it for an hour, but will you come back another week? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause there's loads of loads and loads of stuff that I want to talk to you about. And I'm sure there will be even more loads whenever we actually <laughs> talk again. So <laughs> things happen in between. So. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's always always good to talk to you. So you can people can find you on Twitter yeah. at Brad underscore Frost. Oh man, I hate underscores. <laughs> have you got Sorry. a middle? Have you got a middle name? Yeah. Could you not be Brad Nelson Frost or? Brad Martin Luther Frost on Twitter. Is it... No. No. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. Not happening. My middle name's actually underscore, which is ironic. Man, that's such a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Or you can follow me at Malarkey. Um, you'll find all the links that we mentioned in this show at our fabulous show notes. You'll find them at unfinished.bz slash 39. And to ask questions or suggest topics, you can message the show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or email me, he has at unfinished.bz or bz. bz for Brad. bz. Thanks again to our sponsor this week, Ghost Lab, synchronized cross-browser and mobile testing taken to the next level. And next week, my guest's going to be the amazing illustrator, Josh Cleland. That's going to be cool. He's doing some really wicked stuff for me at the moment, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> Teasing it. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Brad. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. I'll see you another week. All right, take care.